Hi and welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, climate science, sustainability, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Roxy Matthew Cole. Roxy is a climate scientist at the Indian Institute of Tropical Meteorology. He's currently leading research on climate change, how it extends to rapid warming in Indo-Pacific oceans and impacts the global rainfall pattern, the monsoon and the marine ecosystem. He's a co-chair of the Clevar Indian Ocean Region Panel and a lead author of the IPCC Special Report on Oceans and Cryosphere in the Changing Climate. The Indian Meteorological Society felicitated him with the Young Scientist Award in 2016 for his research on the changes in the monsoon. I'm Keithi Manyan and I'll be your host for today. Hi Roxy, thanks so much for coming on the show. I am going to get started by asking you this. What was your starting point on your climate change journey? Hi Keithi, thanks for uh, inviting me for this interesting discussion. For me, I always wanted to be a naturalist. I used to go out for bird watching and animal surveys when I was doing my undergrads in Kerala. I was also fascinated by science fiction by Asimov and books by Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking and wanted to pursue astrophysics. But it's not the land or space that took my passion. I jumped from outer space to the ocean because we know less about the sea around us, right? I started my climate journey with a master's in oceanography from Cochin University in Kerala. Then after a brief stint in National Institute of Oceanography in Goa, I moved to Japan for my PhD. And my PhD was on how the ocean conditions can affect the Indian monsoon. So there again, I get close to home. So after my PhD, I got married to my sweetheart, Juby, and then we moved to Italy for a couple of years. Those were wonderful years. And there I spent my time fiddling with climate models. I was working with the Climate Change Center in Italy, in Bologna, north of Italy. Mm-hmm. And these are the climate models which we use now to understand how the climate is changing. But I could not stay away from India for long because India presented a lot of challenges and opportunities. And I wanted to take that responsibility. And that's how I joined the Indian Institute of Tropical Meteorology in Pune. In 2010, India government just started a center on climate change research in IITM in Pune. And I have been there since start. It's more than a decade now, working on climate change around India, in the Indian Ocean, and how it affects the life around. That has been my climate change journey. Okay. And that goes perfectly into our next question, which is, can you tell our listeners about what climate change means in India? And what are the key issues that you think the country is being faced with? India is facing climate change at all time scales and at all facets. On a long term, we see melting glaciers to changing monsoons to rising sea level. And on top of that, we have extreme weather events such as heavy rains that cause floods or the deadly tropical cyclones like that we saw recently or heat waves and cold waves. Sometimes some of them act together. That's where it gets tricky and deadly. So there the threat gets multiplied. And if you consider the population and vulnerability of the local population, the threat gets multiplied again. We call them combat events. For example, for a city like Mumbai, when faced by a cyclone, it's not just the winds. 
the cyclone may be accompanied by heavy rains and storm surges, right? And riding on a sea level rise, the water being pushed from the sea and the water from the rains can flood a city like that, which is already clogged. So our forecasts are improving over time, but so has the challenges for India. Right. Okay. And you're currently leading research on climate change. Can you tell us more about it, especially in light of the three major climate change events which have hit India? One was the locust swarms, then you had cyclone Amphan, then you had cyclone Nisarg. Can you tell us more about this, please? Yeah, the locust swarms and the back-to-back cyclones were unprecedented for India and the Indian subcontinent region. These are extreme weather events rising from a warm ocean. The locust outbreak started after warm waters in the Western Indian Ocean in late 2019, which fueled storms and substantial amounts of rains over East Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. And these warm waters were caused by a phenomenon called the Indian Ocean Dipole. With the Indian Ocean Dipole, you have warmer than usual waters to the west of Indian Ocean and cooler than usual waters to the east. And rising temperatures due to global warming amplified this dipole and made the western part of Indian Ocean particularly warm. And this triggered the heavy rains and storms because when you have warm waters, you increase the chances of convection and you can have storms and rains. So these heavy rains triggered the growth of vegetation in arid areas where the desert locusts can then grow and breed. So there was a lot of locust outbreaks in the East African Arabian Peninsula. And these locusts then followed the winds and rains to the Indo-Pak region early this year. They found greener pastures over North India as the pre-monsoon rains during March, April, May were also in excess. So while the warm waters in the Western Indian Ocean enhanced the storms over there, it also pushed dry air over the Eastern Indian Ocean. So this accentuated the dry summer over Australia. I mean, recently, the bushfires occurred over Australia. It's the same event which triggered some of these worst bushfires that the country has seen. After that, we had the back-to-back cyclones, both on the east coast and the west coast of India. And again, the cyclones draw their energy from the warm waters over the ocean because that can enhance the convective activity. So what happened essentially happened is that the Indian Ocean, just prior to the cyclones, the first cyclone, Cyclone Amphan in Bay of Bengal, just before the cyclone, we had temperatures ranging from 30 to 33 degrees Celsius over Bay of Bengal, which are quite high. We haven't seen temperatures that high over the Bay of Bengal. And this helped or assisted the cyclones to evolve from a low-pressure system to a depression to a very strong, severe cyclone in a short time. This is called rapid intensification. So warmer waters are helping in a rapid intensification of cyclones. In this case of cyclone Amphan, the climate change-induced temperatures assisted it to develop from a Category 1 cyclone, that's about 100 to 150 kilometers per hour, to a Category 5 cyclone, that's a 250 kilometers per hour cyclone, in a short span of about 18 hours. That's like overnight. So this kind of rapid intensification was unprecedented. Even the 
the weather models could not pick up this kind of rapid intensification. That's a challenge. And fortunately, we were able to almost give an accurate track for the cyclone often. Similarly, we had a cyclone over the west coast as well. Again, warm temperatures assisted it to form from a low pressure system to a cyclone in quite a short time. And this was one of a cyclone because we never saw in our recorded history a cyclone hitting near Mumbai or the Maharashtra coast in the month of June. Because generally in June, the monsoon winds pick up and the winds are generally not conducive for cyclones to develop. Again, atmospheric conditions were not favorable that time. The ocean conditions were prime. It was quite warm, which assisted intensification to a cyclone. So this is how the ocean warming has enhanced or accentuated the extreme weather events across the Indian coast. So I'm going to jump to extreme weather events, which seem to be becoming more and more frequent. And do you think the public is right or wrong in attributing every event that happens to climate change? Yeah, we see that, right? I mean, whenever we have an event, we attribute it to climate change, at least some of us. So while we can't single out each event, we can confidently say that there is an element of climate change in each and every moment. If you see the last several years, the top 10 warmest years in our records happened since the year 2000. 2019 was the second warmest. And we are living in the warmest decade. You and me, we have been throughout living in the warmest decades the recent human history has seen. And we are going ahead at an accelerated pace. Almost every month is warmer than what we had a few decades back. And this is all clearly attributed to global warming due to increased emissions by human activity. When the air is warmer than usual, it holds more moisture and it becomes unstable too. That's a basic thermodynamic property which we can see in the most of the weather events now. And that's reflected in the monsoons. For example, we see much more fluctuations in the monsoon. So to some extent, we see a contribution of climate change in most of the recent extreme events. To attribute the share of climate change to each event, we need to do in-depth analysis of these events. So you mentioned something about human activity, right? And I wanted to bring this, bring up the question of what's happening in India currently. Do you think the current lockdown in India is also affecting weather patterns? And I want to understand, is it for the good or is it getting worse because of the lockdown? Yeah, that's a question which has been going around and several uh, ideas have been flouted. And there are several reasons to think so that lockdown is affecting the weather patterns because at least we clearly see that atmospheric pollutants over India have reduced or some other regions also because some of the industries have been shut down. So the particulate matter, that's the atmospheric pollutants at 2.5 micron level, these have reduced. And when the particulate matter or the atmospheric pollutants reduce, it changes the solar radiation, which gets reflected or absorbed. Now, the tricky thing is that the chemistry of each of these atmospheric pollutants are different and the amount of absorption and the amount of solar radiation reflected is different. So the contribution of 
reduced atmospheric pollution to temperature changes. It's quite tricky to estimate. We are doing model experiments to see how much it may impact regions globally and both locally over India as well. We are planning to do some experiments to see if it can affect the temperature over India and thereby the monsoon as well. We don't have clear answers to it yet. The most important factor is that the lifetime of carbon dioxide is quite long. So whatever carbon dioxide emissions we already had, it will stay for years to come or centuries to come. Even if you want to reduce the carbon dioxide amount by 50%, it will take several centuries. So the only thing we can do is to stop it from accelerating further. So that's what we have to look forward to. So what we can do is stop it from getting further worse and learn to adapt and mitigate with what the extremes we are facing now. Right, okay. So one of the questions, I mean, monsoon and when the weatherman predicts the monsoon, I know it's like a big thing in India, especially yeah. June. It's like, oh my God, it's going to come, especially in Bombay also for that matter. So do you think monsoon predictability has worsened with time? And would you attribute this directly to climate change? Also, what does this mean in terms of agriculture and food production for the farmers and then forward on to the consumers? Yeah, with global change, the monsoon behavior also has changed over time. We see that there is 10 to 20% decline in rains in some parts of north-central India, which is of a grave concern. Along with that, the extreme rains also have increased. So while the total rain we receive during a season is coming down in some parts of India, especially central north India. At the same time, over these regions, the heavy rains are increasing. And this is a grave concern for agriculture because a large share is still rain-fed, right? We need the right amount of rainfall at the right time. So what is happening now is we are having longer dry periods intermittent with shorter, heavy spells of rain. And that doesn't help the agriculture. And though forecasts have improved, our models are not yet perfect in capturing all the intricacies that come with climate change. For example, the ocean impact. Monsoon changes have been tracked to what is happening over the Indian and Pacific oceans and sometimes the Atlantic too. For example, there are events in the Pacific like the El Ninos. These are warm water conditions in the Pacific, which can affect the monsoon. So in terms of year-to-year monsoon variability, the Indian Ocean and Pacific has a role in modulating the monsoon winds. And this relationship has changed over time due to ocean warming. And the models haven't picked up. So that's a challenge we have to work on. We are working on in our institute and other global centers as well on how to capture this changing relationship between the ocean and the monsoon and whether we can forecast the monsoons better. Right. So one of the questions I have is we talk about monsoon predictability and then we talk about how do we help people who are affected by the monsoons. Now, for instance, in the IPCC's fifth assessment report, by the 2070s, they're talking about Asian port cities like Bombay, Calcutta, at most at risk and in terms of population and assets exposed to coastal flooding. So what kind of early warning systems are already in place to help vulnerable populace? 
and what more needs to be done yes the risk is increasing and we need to be prepared as i told you the extremes are on a rise we see a threefold rise in extreme rainfall events already happening over uh, parts of western ghats and parts of central india so each city should have an early warning system in place based on the local demographics and the infrastructure and these multiple impacts that they may face weather forecasts they tell you whether you will get rain or winds but what tell you how the impact on ground level is since it involves several factors like those we discussed for example if you want to know about the floods we need to know the tidal conditions the rivers the reservoirs if it is mumbai we need to know the tidal conditions and how the canals are if it is kerala we need to know how the reservoirs are the flood plains are integrate all this into the early warning system as a response to the chennai floods they established a flood warning system there with the help of iit bombay so now in that flood warning system they integrated the tidal conditions the rivers the reservoirs the flood plains and integrated all this into their flood warning system now the ministry of earth sciences this came up this week they have taken up and installed a similar flood warning system for mumbai on experimental basis we might be on the right track if this works well for the both the cities which have occasional floods for example mumbai it's expected with the kind of heavy rains that the western ghats face and the local conditions flood is expected almost every year right so if you have this early warning systems working in these cities and if this can be replicated for other cities across india as well we might be on the right track yeah i think something has been very useful when the big floods happen in july i remember walking through the streets of bombay trying to get back home from my workplace and it was such a traumatizing experience i think everybody in bombay has a story about that particular oh really very in mumbai in uh, 2005 flood yeah i was i was wow. yeah my workplace in andheri and i had to like get home, get back home to my suburb far away so that i think every bombay person has a story about this flood or so something like that even 20 30 years ago <laughs> if you think about it yeah exactly floods have been happening in mumbai that was a huge flood such heavy rains didn't occur after that but still every year mumbai is having floods and it's yeah. high time that we tackle it i want to move on to marine conservation as an issue now nearly 85% of the corals in the gulf of manar bleached between mid april to mid may and this was kind of shocking to me but as the sea temperatures rose so this happened and you talk about seagrass meadows and they store carbon but the oceans warm they start to disappear can you take us to perhaps what needs to be done perhaps not from happening but what can we do about marine conservation yeah it's actually devastating and both ocean warming and also there's a lot of coral mining also happening over uh, gulf of manar so both are a response to human activities so we first response is to tackle those human activities stop it from happening but at the same time we can go for restoration projects so what we are seeing is that there are both restoration for coral reefs and also sea grass meadows happening at some parts of gulf of manar so what i heard from reports is that in the gulf of manar region you have 21 islands small islands 
And two of them have almost disappeared due to rising sea level and other activities, coastal erosion. And one of them, they're trying to bring it back. It's called the Warren Island in uh, Gulf of Manor. And that is through seagrass restoration. So what they're doing is they picked up some of the resilient type of seagrasses and they're trying to plant it around and spread it across so that it stops the coastal erosion and help revive the island. So similar activities are being tried for the coral reefs as well. If this can be replicated along the coastline of India where corals can thrive, we have a huge coastline, more than 7,000 kilometers, if you consider the mainland and the islands too. So this shows that human activities can be used positively as well for restoration projects. That is one way we can think about by moving forward to restoration projects for reefs and for the seagrass as well along our coastline. Right. I'm going to move on to the National Climate Change Action Plan. So the Indian government has set this up. And I remember reading in a Hindustan Times report that you had talked about a framework to address climate change disasters as well as the current pandemic that is on. Do you think this particular plan could fit into a scheme of the framework that you have talked about? Yeah, India already has a national climate change action plan, like you said, and policies that can help in adapting and mitigating climate change, right? However, many of these policies haven't been adequately followed up. Recently, an IIT Bombay study, they revealed that floods in Indian cities are more of a management problem. It's not just a weather problem. India can and should take up the climate crisis as an opportunity to lead uh, other countries in the research and development of these early warning systems. And at the same time, renewable energy resources and energy efficient infrastructure as well. So our weather forecasting system is quite sound, but we need early warning systems that integrate these multiple weather events with the human demographics and land use at the local level. If we have these early warning systems in place and the policies well managed, I think it is something we can make work. That's what I understand. Right. So then my question to you is, do you think sometimes bureaucracy plays a part in potentially accelerating the way things can move? I know it's a fact of Indian life. It's a fact of the way, you know, the way things work. Bureaucracy is a part and parcel of every Indian person's life. But do you think sometimes it actually hinders the way things might proceed or can you know actually go at a faster space, so to speak? Yeah, that's true. Actually, uh, one important factor we need in terms of these uh, policies, working these policies out or early warning systems, is the integration between different departments. And that's where the bureaucracy becomes much more difficult. For example, here in the case of early warning systems, which we talked about, we need uh, cooperation between ministries. It's not just departments. So we need both the monitoring and forecasts from the weather departments. And also we need uh, ground level details from the water department, from the local administration, from the reservoirs. So all this information has to be frequently passed. It's the data and information that has to be shared between for these early warning systems to, to work or even the policies to be managed. So there, if we can 
smoothen the interaction between different departments in India, I think that can speed up many of these activities. That sounds like a startup idea <laughs> where you have one body looking at fixing all these different parts together. Yeah. I had a chat with uh, another podcast guest and Ailes Bian was saying the same thing. Like She's talking about technology and law kind of going together. And in this case, it's about tech and the legislation and the policy keeping pace with each other True. to help people. And sometimes I feel like governments might mean well, but they tend to kind of lag behind what is probably happening in the market right now. It's just the nature of things. I understand that. But I think, you know, the populace tends to suffer because of this, unfortunately. True, true. And there is a lot of research and development going on in many of these departments. And if they converge together, if they work together, I think there's a huge possibility there to keep things working. Absolutely, absolutely. I totally agree with you. So one of the things that makes people come together is the COP, and the COP26 is going to happen in Glasgow next year. What are your expectations, if any, from it? Yeah, COP25 was disappointment since there was no call to concrete action. And we as humans lost an important opportunity to show ambition to tackle the climate crisis. That's what I think. Now, I am not sure since COVID has come up now if climate change will take a backseat. But as you can see, pandemics like COVID act as a threat multiplier for those who are already challenged by the climate change issues. So we need to invest and tackle both hand in hand. And in terms of India, we have promised to increase its already sizable investments in renewable energy resources from about 2.4 gigawatts of solar power capacity in 2014. India has reached a capacity of almost 31 gigawatts in 2019. That's quite a large transformation. Absolutely. Yeah, which needs to be appreciated. And however, we have committed 100 gigawatts in solar power by 2022. And investment towards this commitment haven't been properly followed up, especially in the face of a large population and changing priorities, as we all know. So we need to work on that too. Right. So what kind of climate change narrative do you think is presented by the media to ordinary Indians? And do you think climate science needs to be upfront in this narrative? I am in fact happy to see that the media, at least in India, is discussing about climate change quite frequently. That doesn't happen in the US. I can give an example from my own work. Yes, please. So recently we published a high-impact uh, article in one of the journals called Nature, and that was about how the Indo-Pacific warming changes extreme weather events across the globe, including the US, India, and other countries as well. So this was very well highlighted by media in India, both national and local regional media in India. But it was not picked up by US media outlets that well. So I see that in India, at least in the recent years, media has picked up a lot of discussion on uh, weather and climate events. And people now are aware of climate change. Many of them are experiencing its impacts already. I guess the problem lies in where we give the priority. We still think that climate change is not today's priority, maybe. So that may be true for someone trying to make ends meet. And how their daily roti and dal. But 
we need to know that this roti and dal depends on how the climate is, in fact. Like we discussed for many of the rural population, it's the state of climate that determines whether they, they have a roof over their head or not. And it's the droughts and floods that is happening more frequently. They can damage the agriculture and wash away the houses as well. So probably the media can bring this on a more in-depth manner. It's not just the media. I think we scientists are also to take part of the blame. We also should be able to connect our science to the society in a better way. Again, interestingly, we had another podcast, Sejal Mehta, who brought this up. She was with Marine Life of Mumbai. And she kept saying this, you know, she kept saying how science needs to be easily communicable. Like you're talking about, it's digestible by just the average guy who understands immediately what is going on instead of, you know, the big word syndrome. So I find it's very interesting. Each of our guests keeps saying it in different forms and ways. Yeah, I think generally for many scientists, the scientific work stops at publishing their research in journals. But I would say that's where it starts. So you have published your major results and conclusions, and then you have to take it to the public so that it is consumed well and it is utilized by the society, both for the merits of the information presented and maybe the technologies presented in those publications. So it's quite important that we talk about the science we do. And in IITM, in our institute, we recently started a course on science communication. It's not exactly meant for communicating to the public or media, but it's for general how to present your work in seminars and conferences and all. But even that, I think, helps. Maybe it's a first step towards communicating science to the public. I think we can have more efforts like that. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully for the future, that's what's going to happen. The scientist publishes something and it is said in such a way that it is actually understood by everybody around them. So my last question to you then is, what would your call of action be to our listeners? We always ask this from our podcast guests. What would you say that we need to do for a foreseeable future that will impact the way we maybe solve climate change? Yeah, as a country, we need to act quickly and steadily towards reducing our emissions and making sure that early warning systems are in place, as we discussed. And as an individual, I guess each and everyone can play a major role, whatever their profession is. That's because we need to act both globally and locally as well. So if in the case of policy-wise, we can make sure that our local administration, wherever we are, they are following up with the best practices for sustainable development and lifestyle. On the agriculture sector, Farmers and agriculture departments can plan for uh, drought and flood resilient crop variants. So each sector or each profession can work towards adapting and mitigating climate change. And on top of all that, we need innovation, innovation for energy efficient products. Back at my own home, I keep asking my kids to switch off the lights after use. And this happens almost every day. It's quite difficult, (laughs) right? We as humans are big-time consumers. And it's difficult to change lifestyle of more than a billion people, I guess. For me, it's the lights. For someone else, it may be the water usage. So either we need major reforms 
or we need innovation that can reduce the climate change impact. I hope innovators, both young and old, will come up with ideas and take us ahead. Our country needs to invest more on research and development, period. Thank you. That was a great end. And thank you so much for such insightful answers. And we've had a great time talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kirti. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the questions and discussing with you. And your ideas resonate with me in terms of climate change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have you always wanted to kickstart your climate journey but didn't know how to? Register for our open house to learn more about what makes Terra.do tick. Speak to our fellows and get insights about the course curriculum, connecting with a diverse bunch of people and transitioning into climate work. Happening on the 1st of August from 9 to 11 a.m. PDT, click on the link in the description to register.